Isaiah chapter 7. Um, I'm not going to read the passage, but you can kind of track with me as I talk about this passage. Because 2,700 years ago, 300 years after King David, there's a bad king named Ahaz. And he's ruling Judah. And while he's reigning in Judah, because Israel is split into two kingdoms through Solomon's son, there's this superpower that begins to emerge and conquer the Middle East, the Assyrian Empire. And smaller kingdoms like the one called Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel, they join forces together feeling this threat here to defend against the Assyrian Empire. But they still weren't strong enough, so they invited Ahaz in the kingdom of southern Israel, Judah, to join forces. But King Ahaz refused for whatever reason. So northern Israel and Aram began to plan to dethrone Ahaz and wipe out the whole line of David through whom Ahaz is descended from. You see this in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 9, Ahaz, he doesn't worship the God of Israel, Yahweh. He's a pagan idol worshiper. He's pretty impressed with the other nation's gods. He's very afraid of this attack of northern Israel and Aram on him, because he wouldn't ally with them. But because of God's eternal promise to David, God sends his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. And Ahaz, in verses 3 through 9, he's out checking Jerusalem's water supplies to make sure they're going to be all set for this siege that's going to come against them from Aram and northern Israel. And Isaiah meets him, and he takes his son, Isaiah takes his own little boy, his own son, Shear Jashab. He takes him with him to meet with the king. And Shear Jashab, Isaiah's son, his name means, a remnant shall return. And Isaiah tells Ahaz not to be afraid. And he says the guy who the plot was to overthrow and replace Ahaz will prove to be a good for nothing. And the plot won't succeed to overthrow Ahaz and wipe out the line of David. And God will judge those two kings of Aram and northern Israel leading this conspiracy against David's line. And so then you get to verses 10 through 17. Now Ahaz, he's this idolater. He doesn't have a relationship with the one through God, Yahweh, of Israel. And he doesn't trust God's word through Isaiah. So he's made his own arrangements. He's actually going back door and he's conspiring with the Assyrian Empire. And so he sent the emperor, Tiglath-Pileser, he's the Assyrian emperor, he's, you can read about him in your history books, and this is recorded, this, this actual um, uh, arrangement between Ahaz and Tiglath-Pileser and the, um, and the Assyrian uh, 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 libraries of these clay uniform books again. But he sent the emperor gifts and letters requesting assistance and defense against Aram and northern Israel. He has greater faith in the Assyrian Empire to protect them than the God of Israel. And so in these verses 10 through 17, God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very patient with you, Ahaz, and I'm going to offer you a sign through Isaiah. And he promises to give him any sign, any sign that Ahaz asks that will convince Ahaz not to fear or trust the Assyrians, but to trust the God of Israel. 
any sign, whatever it takes to convince him. And so in verse 12 of Isaiah 7, Ahaz puts on this sanctimonious air. He acts very spiritual and he says, oh, I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to test God that way. Not because he's got a transformed heart, but because he's set in his ways and he doesn't want to trust God's word through Isaiah. And so in verses 13 through 14 of Isaiah 7, the most familiar verses here, Isaiah addresses Ahaz and the entire house of David, the entire line, the dynasty of David, this, this, this dynasty, this, this uh, line here that God says he will preserve. And he says, you're testing God's patience in verse 13. And the Lord himself then will choose this sign. Since you won't choose, the Lord will choose the sign. And this will be the sign. There's going to be a virgin who will be with child. And it will be a son. And when he's born, she'll call his name Emmanuel. He will be the sign that the house of David, the promise that God made to David, that his line will never be wiped out, that God will be faithful to that promise, he will be the sign. And so in verses 15 through 17, because this would happen in the future, just to show that to be true in Ahaz's day, before Isaiah's son, who is with him, remember in verse 3, he's with him, he's, before he's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, the kings of Aram and northern Israel are going to be taken out and their threat to Judah and Ahaz and the line of David is going to be exterminated. And three years later, that happens. Jump ahead 700 years. Matthew. One of Jesus' twelve. The one who worked for the Roman government, the oppressor. Who forced taxation from the oppressed, the Israelites. The one who calls himself a scribe for the kingdom in his book, Matthew. After Paul's letters have been written... Christianity has been duly established in the Roman Empire. Matthew writes an account of Jesus to strengthen churches that have been planted with who Jesus was and what he taught. And he pictures Jesus as the new Moses, the new deliverer, the new rescuer, and the rightful king from David's line who delivers his people from slavery to sin into a promised land of new life as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. And he has this phrase over and over, this must be some scripture would be fulfilled in his work. And so that leads us to Matthew chapter 1. And so go to Matthew, back to Matthew 1, and look at Matthew 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word generation can be translated, it's, it's, the, it's the Greek word genesis, the beginning, the genealogy, the generation, the beginning of Jesus Christ. So he's introducing us to this individual here. And then he goes through all these, this line here of Jesus' descendants. And then in verse 16 he says this, and Jacob fathered Joseph, that was another Jacob, fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So David's Messiah. And from Joseph's perspective, 
he lets the reader know the role that this Jesus is to play. And he says something, Matthew says something very interesting in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon, the captivity, are 14 generations. And from the carrying away of Babylon, uh, into Babylon to Christ, Christ's birth, are 14 generations. And then Matthew's going to write in verses 18 through 25, Joseph's part of the story. Joseph is an eyewitness to this. And he's going to show us three things. The first thing is this. He's going to show us who this Jesus is. The second thing is he's going to show us where he came from. And the third thing he's going to show us is, is he worth following? Is he worth following? So those three things are what we're going to see here this morning. Where did he come from? Where did he come from? For as, as Logan read here, uh, at the beginning in verse 16, what happened is, after stating 39 times that so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and going through the line, Matthew breaks this pattern, and he describes the birth of Jesus in terms of his mother. And so in verse 17, or 16, he says, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. And what he's going to show us in verses 18 through 25 is this, that Jesus, this Jesus, this Messiah, the generation of Jesus, the Messiah here, he's eternal God, the Son, joined with humanity through a, through a miracle conception. A miracle conception. The Spirit of God... Just as he did in creation in Genesis chapter 1, brings life to a virgin womb and the eternal Son of God adds a human nature to himself. But it says in verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this way. Or, this is how it happened, is what Matthew's saying. When his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found a child of the Holy Ghost. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed or engaged and they're waiting for the official marriage ceremony. And that marriage ceremony after that would be physically consummated. Before that happens, it's found out that she's expecting. And Matthew says she was found the child of the Holy Spirit. So there's something different about this child. Joseph doesn't know this information. And so in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just or a righteous man, not willing to make her a public example as he properly should and could in that, in that day, was minded to put her away privately. Was minded to divorce her privately, not, not, not make a show of it. Um, to give her some grace. Really, extremely unusual here. But while he was thinking about these things, I mean, this obviously really disturbed him, and I hope, hope it would disturb you too. You found out the one who you were engaged to was expecting, and you knew you were not the father. He doesn't know how this happened. And he's thinking about this, and thinking about this process in verse 20. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, you descendant of David's line, don't fear, fear not to take and marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken to the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And he gets up, and he takes Mary to be his wife, he doesn't divorce her, and he does what God says. And he doesn't have sexual relations with her. In verse 25, he knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Where does Jesus come from? Well, we're not told the details, but we are told that this virgin birth came through the Spirit. And we're not told the details, which means we don't need to know the details. But what we are to do is to be in shock, as Joseph was in shock, to be in awe, and to marvel at that. But because Matthew says this was done because of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and fulfillment of that, fulfillment of the scriptures, we're also to marvel at the truth that this is not a surprise to God, but this is a fulfillment of scripture. All the way back from Genesis 3.15, there would be a seed born from the woman. In Isaiah 7.14, the sign that the line of David would not be wiped out, but would be eternal. And now we know how. Through a virgin birth to the eternal Son of God, who death could have no final grip over. And Joseph had to come to believe this. And accept God's revelation. And he did. And we must. So where did he come from? The Holy Spirit conceived the child in Mary's womb, the virgin. Strange. You can't make this stuff up. There'd be better ways to, to, to try to explain the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the probability of this, right, to the lost world. I mean, to the lost world. This is ridiculous, right? And this is grounds of our faith. <laughs> well, who is he? Who is he? Look at verse 20. While he's thinking about these things, the angel appears and says, Take Mary, because that child is not from another man. That child is a virgin birth from the Holy Ghost. Verse 20. And she shall bring forth a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is done that it would be fulfilled. By the prophet, who said in Isaiah 7:14, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Who is he? He's to be named Yeshua. Joshua would have been the common name. There were many Jewish boys named Joshua. We even have a book about a Joshua, right after the book of Deuteronomy, who leads Israel after Moses here. Joshua. But this, the, the meaning behind the name is this, Savior. And he's to be called Yeshua, he's to be called Joshua, because he shall save his people from their sins. Now to the Jewish first century reader here, they needed to understand that Jesus didn't come just simply to raise a living standard. Though he will one day do that, right? And he expects his followers certainly to do good in society. And he did not come to ultimately take care of the Roman oppressors. But we will take care of oppression one day. Notice what he says. He shall save his people from their sins. Their sins. Oppression and suffering at the hands of others is real, real sin. He'll take care of it 
but not everyone is an oppressor in that sense. However, everyone is a sinner in their own way. And Jesus gets to the core of it here. He cuts the nerve out of which everything evil flows here. He came to cut the nerve of man's real dilemma from their sin. He wanted the Israelites to understand this, that their problem wasn't somebody else hurting them. Their ultimate problem was how they were hurting God. Sin is the true oppressor that needs saving from. I was struck years ago by this definition of sin that someone gave that drilled me between the eyes because it's true of everyone that's turned to their own way. What is sin? It is the glory of God, not honor. The holiness of God, not reverence. The greatness of God, not admire. The power of God, not praise. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The commandments of God, not obeyed. The justice of God, not respected. The wrath of God, not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The presence of God, not prized. The person of God, not loved. That is sin. He will save his people from their sins. What will this one born do? He will save those who come to him in faith from the penalty, the power, and one day the presence of the bondage of rebellion against him and his design and his character. The apostles, Matthew being one of them, the apostles later will over and over herald this good news as Jesus always existed as God's Son. He was sent by God the Father. He took on human flesh in fulfillment of God's promises to David and Israel. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He resurrected. He conquered death by the power of the Holy Spirit. He appeared to many witnesses and he is enthroned as King, Messiah, and Lord. And he sent the Holy Spirit and one day he will return to judge, and to reign. And all those who turn to him through this, through, through, through trusting uh, allegiance will be rescued by the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin and be received into his family as white strangers now reconciled forever with him. Notice what the rest of who this person is. Who is this Jesus? He's Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. But also, he's Emmanuel. He's Emmanuel. So here's what Matthew's saying. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, this guy, Jesus, he just had something wonderful. There just must be a touch of the divine on him. But rather, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the line of David, the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7, 8, 9. The Emmanuel. His birth was a result of God's supernatural intervention. He is God's very Son. And so Matthew is inviting us here to consider and worship the God who accepts vulnerability in a woman's womb, born as an infant. But he is God with his people. God with his people. Matthew's going to repeat this if you read the rest of Matthew over and over. In Matthew 8, he was with his disciples when the storm struck him. He was with them as they were received or rejected when they preached the kingdom. 
and Matthew 10. He would be with them when they had to deal with sin in the community in Matthew chapter 18. He is so identified with their experiences that in Matthew 25 he says, what you've done to them, you've done to me. And then at the end of the book of Matthew, this God with us bookends in Matthew chapter 28, the entire gospel, and as the church obeys its mandate to make disciples of the nations, Jesus promises, and lo, behold, I am with you until the end of the age. This chapter here reveals who Jesus is and what he's come to do. He's Messiah. He's the son of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of God's plan and history. He has come to us as the with us God. With us God. He will save his people from their sins through the good news as the saving king from David's line. But it leads us to the last question here. Is he worth giving our lives for? What's Joseph's perspective? Well, Joseph was following God's word as best as he knew right at the beginning, right? In verse 18. And as he obeyed God, God gave him more light, didn't he? More revelation. Do you think that when God gave him that revelation, that the one who's inside your fiancé's womb is a virgin birth? It's going to come out of that? Conceived by the Holy Spirit? Do you think that that helped put everything else in, in, in Joseph's life in perspective? That if he could take God at his word for that, that the other things could fall into line? Like, if, if I can get that, then, then I, I can figure out how to get to Bethlehem. I can figure out to get somewhere to have, you have my wife have this baby. Like, he, God, if, if God can do that, he can take care of these things, Right? Is he worth following? Think about the things that Joseph now will leverage and Joseph will put every ounce of his being and effort into because he knows God's word is true. Stop and think about this, okay? So he does not, he does not put Mary away in divorce as was commanded by Deuteronomy, by the law. You might say, okay, well, that was nice of him. What a nice guy. Oh, because he knows that Mary's going to have a baby. But do you understand the shame that Joseph must now take upon himself? Nobody else believes this is a virgin birth, except a very small circle, right? Oh, you're going to keep her. Okay, it must have been you. Jewish and Roman law, both the man and the man divorce his wife because you're guilty of adultery. Joseph now knows it was not adultery. But others would assume that Joseph himself must have gotten her pregnant. That's why he divorced. His reputation was at stake the rest of his life. And even later on in John chapter 8, you know what the religious leaders are saying about Jesus? You're an illegitimate child. You're an illegitimate child. Even today, rumors swirl it was a Roman soldier. You name And Joseph here experiences the pain of betrayal. He experiences this suffering. He's going to identify with Jesus and God's plan than the, than the 
the shame that he would take. Of course, Mary's already experiencing this, right? You can imagine the ruin, though. But notice Joseph. How committed is he to this? Well, look what it says. Verse 24. When he gets this revelation, raised from his sleep, what does he do? <laughs> you have a simple, quiet obedience to Joseph's life. God gives him this revelation, he does it. God gives more, he does it. God gives more, he does it. In fact, I don't know that we have a single word or conversation that Joseph said. Just describe. There's a simple faith here in Jesus' word. God's word. And so he being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took to him his wife. He does what God says. He bears the shame. And verse 25. As poor people... Anticipating their marriage, he does not have sexual relations with her. Verse 25, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He does not want to have any shadow cast at this child is from This is from God, and God is doing what he said. Can Joseph trust God enough to obey him? Yes. Is this obedience costly? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Was his own reputation important? Yes. Was God's glory and reputation more important? Absolutely. And he is committed here. So is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? What we have in this passage here is a Savior we can trust in a world where trust is generally dangerous, right? Hard to trust others. And only Christianity announces a God who, like Jesus, had to embrace that pain himself of, oh, whose child are you? We know who you really are. We think about the names we have for Jesus. The Bible's full. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Anointed One, the Messiah. Prophet, priest, and king, our Savior, the only wise God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Lord, the Almighty. The Door of the Good Sheep, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, the Shepherd and Bishop of our souls. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The Logos, the message. The Light, the Light of the World, the Light of Life, the Tree of Life, the Word of Life, the Bread that came down from Heaven. The spring from which if a person drinks, he'll never thirst again. The way, the truth in the life, the resurrection in the life, a rock, our bridegroom, our beloved, our redeemer, the head of overall, the head over all things, his body, the church. But above all, he's what? God with us. And he came from heaven to earth to save us from our sins. I wonder if this morning, if that truth has really ripped your heart. And you now understand. They shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. You'll bring forth a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel. Which being translated from the Hebrew is simply 
God with us. Friends, this is the joy, the truth of Christmas message. You think it you think that's good? You think that's wonderful? You think, well, I can drink hot chocolate and decorate my house to that? What about chapter two? It's not pretty. It's not pretty. Because the truth of Emmanuel, God with us, descends even into suffering, even before the cross. And Christmas isn't just for the sentimental times. We'll see next week that Christmas is for the suffering as well. And friend, I wonder, do you know Jesus and know the peace that comes through God with us in your Do you understand the call that God gives you to receive all of Him? Not just the part you like, like a salad buffet, but the wholeness of Jesus, His truth and grace. The Word of God calls us to respond to Him. And the Bible promises that all those who respond to Him and say, God's Word is what it says it is, and Jesus is who God's Word says He is. We'll come into God's family. We'll have their sins forgiven. We'll be made a new creation. We'll restore the relationship with God. We'll have the Holy Spirit, God Himself, dwell in them. And give them the power each day to live for His glory. And to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And we'll reign with Him in eternity. For all eternity. That's the gospel hope. But there's 